On today's complicated conversation, we welcome Karma Brown. Karma is the author of five novels, the number one international bestseller, Recipe for a Perfect Wife, Come Away With Me, a Globe and Mail Best Book of 2015, Globe and Mail and Toronto Star bestsellers, The Choices We Make and In This Moment, and The Life Lucy Knew. She's also the author of The 4% Fix, How One Hour Can Change Your Life, and she co-authored two holiday rom-coms under the pen name Maggie Knox. An award-winning journalist, Karma has been published in Self, Redbook, and Today's Parent, among others. She lives just outside Toronto with her husband, teenage daughter, and a labradoodle named Fred. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Karma. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I've listened to so many of your podcasts. So yay! We did, yeah. Oh, Good. well, your latest novel, "What Wild Women Do," which could there be a better title? I don't think so. I just I, I love don't it. Think so either. It, it couldn't. No, it's a great title. So just um, start um, by giving our listeners sort of the elevator pitch for "What Wild Women Do." Okay, and I have just started talking about this, of course, and so I'm like elevator pitch, right? Yeah. I have to have yeah. elevator pitch. Uh, I'll do my best to try to keep it you know, brief and make sense and sound interesting. What Wild Women Do is a dual timeline story. So it's set in 1975 in the present day, and we meet two women. There is socialite turned feminist Eddie in 1975, who has left her very gilded life and has moved to her family's Adirondacks great camp to run these wild women weekends to help women of that time come and just explore their wild ways. And then we have Rowan, who's a 30-year-old screenwriter, and she and her fiancé, Seth, who's a novelist and also a YouTuber, Mm -hmm. which is what causes some problems between these two as they escape to the Adirondacks for a month to live in this cabin, isolated in the woods, and really work on their creative projects, basically, to try to get through some crossroads that they're at, both personally and professionally. And then within that story, as we go back and forth between these women There is this great camp that connects them. There is a hidden treasure and there is a mysterious disappearance. And all of that culminates to allowing Rowan to really take a look at her life and make some significant changes in her life. And you learn a lot about what happened to Eddie Calloway in 1975. So. Only That's when it's your story. Yeah. Only when it's your ninth book can you go, oh, yeah, I got to do an elevator pitch and then throw out that. <laughs> You know, 100 mile an hour fastball. It's hard to stay concise. I mean, you write this book, it's, you know, 85,000 words. And yeah. then let me give you a couple sentences. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. so many things, but yeah. Yes. Oh, that was fantastic. But you nailed it. Fantastic. Yeah. So we want to start with Rowan. And you've said so many of our buzzwords that we love. Crossroads. We know we learn she's stuck. She's in a creative life that is you know, has appeal to, you know, the fast track viral, you know, kind of ways, but also she wants to go in a different direction. And that's not really what it all means for her. So she's at a point when she's not really sure she's not having she's having trouble believing in herself. And you said in your acknowledgments that you learned a lot from writing her, maybe more than any other character and that you related to her ambition to create something tangible in a modern world. So tell us about your development of Rowan and what you learned writing her. 
Well, Rowan was the first character. I mean, this book went through so many different iterations. Like it, it was one time about these identical twin podcasters and then there was like a murder and then it was a thriller and I've never written a thriller and I, I don't really think I will, but it went through all these twists and turns as a story. And for me, I always had Rowan first. I just, that sort of like on the cusp, you know, of being between really young and feeling like there's all this space in front of you to figure stuff out, but also feeling super anxious about nailing things down because everybody else is seeming to do that. Or there are these milestones that you're supposed to be hitting. And even though I'm 51, I still felt, I still feel some of that. You know, when you're in an industry that's creative, you make this thing alone with your laptop and then it goes out in the world and then everyone has something to say about it. It's just, and social media gets really weird when you are putting something like that out. And so I really related to that, just like a desire to know herself and all the things that were standing in her way. And so it was like that you got to trust yourself. And Rowan was always my, look, Rowan, you got to trust yourself. Like the knowing that's inside of you is real and true and you have to trust it. So that's, for me, that was always her journey. And, you know, I, like, I'm a work in progress too. I know less now at my age than I did when I was 30. I'm sure of it. Yeah. So, Isn't that yeah. the, the real like gift of getting older is that you know less because you feel like you have to know things when you're younger. You feel like otherwise the, it just feels the potential feels out of control and just like too big to grasp. And so you really try to focus your lane. And as you get older, you let kind of some of that fall away, or at least I have. And so, yeah, like you need these anchors. I don't know. It was like, you need an anchor when you're younger because everything feels so, there's so Mm -hmm. much potential. You don't know what you're doing. You don't want anyone to know you don't know what you're doing, despite the fact that nobody knows what you're doing. And then you get older and like, for me, it's been so much more about holding things much more gently than I used yeah. to. It's like a yeah. letting go instead of a, you know, holding tight. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. I love that. And Thank this you. is a perfect segue to Eddie Calloway because I feel like she gives us so much of this wisdom. As you said, she's a 1970s socialite. She has suffered, we learned, uh, an unbearable loss. She takes this fortune that she feels really kind of guilty about and uses it for this wonderful refuge for women at Camp Calloway. And you also noted about how you had just turned 50, or you mentioned now you're 51. While finishing edits of this book, though, you had turned 50. And like Eddie, you were on the cusp of sort of this third act of life when women, unfortunately, are often made to feel invisible. And we, of course, have a podcast that's <laughs> the complete opposite, dedicated to making sure that we are seen. So this is particularly crazy for us, but but especially when it comes to older women who, you know, we've talked about this a lot in various contexts, just are so much wisdom and experience and why we're making, why as a society we're making them invisible. It's just inc- insane to us. But but tell us more about Eddie, your development of her, and maybe, you know, what wisdom you wanted her to impart to Rowan and, and the other women. Yeah. I mean, Eddie is like, Eddie lives inside me. Rowan lives inside mm-hmm. me. Eddie, the Eddie inside me is always talking to the Rowan inside me and not in a condescending way, just in a yeah. like, let's relax and just yeah. 
remember mm-hmm. that we can do this or we are strong or we don't need to be doubting anything mm-hmm. because it, it you, know, you know no one knows again like i said no one knows anything and we pretend we do and everybody's pretending except maybe i mean there are people who know things like we all know yes. some things but yes. but don't but isn't 30 like the height of that is when you really feel is. like you can't be because it's such a milestone. Like yes. Yes. there are people who are married and having children. There are people who are very settled into careers. And if you are somewhere in between that feeling settled, it's like, yeah. well, where, how do I fit in? What am I doing with my life? Yeah. I mean, I remember feeling that at 30 I and did. now that I'm not 30, yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, the things I, the things I thought were important, yeah. you know, just not important. And yeah. so for Eddie, I wanted her, I mean, she's flawed. She does a lot of this imperfectly, but she has this one driving force inside of her, which is to provide other women with the opportunity that she feels she was given through a tragedy, but she took that opportunity and turned it into something good. And she just does not want other women to miss that to miss the opportunity to do that. And so, you know, she has all these mantras in there and she writes out lists about what wild women do. And I was saying to someone else, I was like, that list at the end about who wild women are, I don't even, it just wrote itself. And I feel like, you know, Eddie was always sort of waiting for me just to catch up. Yeah. And, you know, and I read the things people are like, oh, when Eddie said this, I'm like, right, Eddie said that. Like, no, wait, I said that. It came out of my head, but it's weird. You know, you're you're an author too. It's just like the things that happen, there's this magical alchemy sometimes that happens where you become your characters and you don't really understand how it's happened, but you're grateful for it. Yes, absolutely. Love that list. I'm thinking of posting that on the wall here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and interspersed throughout the novel, you have pages from the Camp Calloway Wild Woman Handbook. And one of our favorite quotes was, if you want to transform, you can't be tentative, which I love. And also, we'll come back to this, but spoken like a true cardinal sign, by the way. (laughs) But as we've talked about, you have also shared a life-changing trauma, being diagnosed with cancer at age 30. And you can see how that would make someone want to kind of grab onto life and not be tentative. We'd love to hear how that impacted your relationship with time and intentionality and how much of that you explored through Rowan. I mean, gosh, it's one of those things that it impacts so many different aspects of your life. And 20 years later, it continues to impact parts of my life that I didn't even understand it could impact. And it's not all positive and that's okay. You know, that's, that's the way life is. But I will say that it certainly made me more aware of just what it means to enjoy your life and to not worry about the things that you can't control, despite the fact that I'm a control freak and I still worry about things I can't control all the time, but there is a knowing inside of me that those things don't matter. And so even if I get stuck, I find my way out. You know, I do not, I'm not one of those people who's like, I just turned 30 plus 20 yesterday. (laughs) I'm very, very grateful 
for every birthday. I love aging. I'm very excited to see what happens to my face and what happens to my body and what's happening to my mind. It's it's fascinating and it's a privilege. So when I was writing Rowan and Eddie, I mean, I think it's in every character I write just a little bit, you know, because it lives in me. It's that, but Eddie was really an opportunity to explore that on the page without it being specifically about this particular trauma, which I didn't want to do. I mean, you know, it is a private, I've talked about it a lot, but it is a private thing for me, but it has, it has definitely inspired a lot of the women in my stories. And I think Eddie more than anyone and Jess too, maybe Jess a little bit because she's the, you know, she's sort of the, the present person in Rowan's life in those woods who Eddie is almost talking through in some ways because they share quite a lot, those two women as well. Right. Yeah. But in, and then you have Rowan have her own sort of in her backstory, this traumatic experience. And so she's now having to learn this lesson and you're right. I thought of it as learning it through Eddie, but you're right. Jess really is since Eddie, of course, is to see is not, is missing. It's not here. Jess is the link through it. I love that. I didn't even think about that. Um, So staying with the handbook, because there's so many nuggets in there. um, And another one of the excerpts, the camp goers are encouraged to write these letters to their future self that you read one year later. And they're told to write their hopes, dreams, aspirations, and ambitions, and to be prepared for the power of it, which... Oh God, I, I, I read it and I thought, I, yes, if no, you, this um, is, this is what I was just going to say. I need to do this. And have you done this? Yes. Oh, tell me about it. I just feel it's like this so, is manifestation at work here. The first time I did it, I was 17 years old. I oh, went wow. to Outward Bound Wilderness Survival School <laughs> in the middle of nowhere for a month. And this was something they made us do. So at the end of our month-long session, we had to write a letter to ourselves. And it was, you know, an on-paper letter because this was a long time ago. There was no internet. And and you were to write it to yourself, you know, like Dear Karma. And then all the things that you hope to be true a year from that point. And then you sealed it up and you put it in the envelope with your address on it. I gave it to them and I forgot about it. And then a year later, it arrived in the mail. And I opened it up and I was like, whoa, I can't believe all the things that I was feeling and thinking, but also all the things that I hoped for, how many of them had happened. And that led me on this like bucket list type of thing where I, I still have it. I have a notebook that I listed all these bucket list ideas. And what was so funny about this is that I never wanted to write a novel. I wanted to be the Katie Cork of the North. I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. And I just thought, well, I'll never write. I don't want to be a writer, writer. And I went back to that list, like the hundred things I put on there. And it said, write a book. And I put that down when I was 18 years old. And I thought, oh, what? Okay. I've forgotten. Whoa. So I could go on and on about this. Yeah. Listen, like, I, no. I have so much to say. But there is a site. I think it's called futureme.org. And I've been doing this for about five years now. And so you go on there, it's online, you write yourself a letter, they send it to you a year later. Oh my God. And it is 
It is just one of my favorite things to do. Again, I forget all about it. Yeah. I just mm-hmm. got my letter a few days ago because I just had my birthday. So I do it on my birthday. And oh my God. It, it's just, it's the coolest thing. Yes. Because you wow. realize those things live with you all the time. And if you are very purposeful about what you're trying to do, you don't like, again, hold it gently and then see what happens. So yeah, go oh check out futureme.org. I think that's the site. Oh, oh my gosh. Got to. We'll definitely be doing that. Yes. Yeah, it's wow. Awesome. You're talking about so many really cool things that I are blowing my mind, but I want to stay with wild women for a minute. Because on this podcast, I consistently refer to myself and my childhood as feral. And oh. because of this, I think I often escaped or delayed the burdens, some of the burdens that societal expectations place on women. And you have a similar but much more eloquent perspective on this in your dedication. You thank your parents for gifting you a free-range, wilderness-filled childhood. And you say, thanks to you, I learned to explore inside and out. I am a wild woman because of you. And I wanted to hear more about that because I just love that. Well, my parents were hippies. Yeah, uh, this same. is how I got my name, Karma. Oh, and I was wondering. born in 1972. We lived on a farm in the middle of nowhere. They had no money because my dad was a PhD candidate. And so he was making nothing. And my mom was home with us. And so it was like, yeah, I was just writing about this, but it was all, you know, homemade bread and dandelion salads. And we had hobby chickens and we had to get the eggs from them. And I just, that was it. I mean, it was just this beautifully peaceful and adventurous in many ways, sort of upbringing. My parents were very, not strict. You know, we had weekly meetings every Sunday where we would talk about basically our grievances as a family. And then I was always the note taker. So it was just, we were like active participants in our lives, my sister and I as children. And I think that so often now it's, it's a hard thing to do to let your children be people. And I certainly don't get that right all the time, but that has been one of my sort of goals as she's been growing up and with my husband too, just like the two of us remembering that she's a person, even if she's 11 years old, she needs to learn to trust herself. So yeah, I mean, I spent my childhood like just running through fields and looking for pots of gold with my sister at the end of rainbows. And I mean, it was just, yeah, it was, yeah. you know, it was feral. Like yeah. you can yeah. see by that picture. I am like a ragamuffin in that picture. <laughs> my rooster's there, yes. but. It was just so really, you know, so much of, of everything is timing. We're constantly bombarded by messages, but it's when you get it at the right moment that it really lands for you. And I've been struggling. I was so grateful to my parents for so much of that childhood growing up. And then there was a little period of time, and it's probably for me because right now my kids are a lot of work. Like I'm guiding them, but also they're resisting. And how much do you yes. push and how much do you step back? And I'm, I've been a little bit like, you know, my parents didn't do all this work. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just resentful that I have to do it. But I'm like, <laughs> I'm taking it out on them. Like, you didn't yeah. do this. And I don't know. There, ha- It's been building for some time. And it just, your dedication just really con- collected something for me. I was like, you know, 
there was a lot of good stuff that came yeah. from from that too. So it, you know, everything has its good and its bad. So I mean, you pro- those are probably your instincts talking to you about that. About I, I held on really tight as my daughter became a teenager, and you know, was like, what should I be doing? And asking everyone, and how yes. we, how what is the best way? And parents are so involved in their children's lives, which is great, but it's also not great because those decisions that we had to make are now being made by parents, by coaches, Mm. by teachers. They're just not learning how to trust themselves the same way. And so I was like, I can't, I don't think I, you know, we don't, she has a phone, she's on social media. She understands our preferences. Yeah. And she has free range. Mm-hmm. I mean, she takes her phone to bed at night and I don't know how long she's on there. And really we're just sort of like, look, you know, we talk about it a lot, but yeah. she has yeah. to figure it out. That's yes. what my husband and I are always saying to each other. Yes. She's got to figure this out mm-hmm. because we will not always be there to figure it out for her. That so. is the the key thing I learned, we spent a month in LA this summer and I had to mm-hmm. let go of some, I was like, they're going to be around new people and people they haven't seen. And like, what will it be like? And I just realized I don't have to get it right before anything happens. Yeah, I can just yeah. always open the lines of communication. Mm-hmm. And they know it's one of those things where I'm like, what does mom say? They roll their eyes and like, if anything bad ever happens and you need to talk and you feel over your head, right, right. you'll never get in trouble trouble for being honest about that. So, you know, that is the best thing I can give them is that line of communication because I mean, that's all I can, I can't. And you trusting them to trust themselves. I mean, that's to know when they get there. That's what it is. Yeah. 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 And that you can always, it's hard. It's hard. hard. It's It's hard. 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 (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that you can always repair it. Like we've said, like, I mean, you don't have to get it right ahead of time to your point. And as long as you're willing to, you know, communicate and do the work, you can, you can repair it after, which we were saying is very freeing. Like, I don't, I don't have to be right. Yeah. Or I yeah. could make a mistake. I don't yeah. know. I told you guys this advice or I thought this and then maybe that yeah. wasn't yeah. the right way. So maybe I was wrong. And then admitting yeah. that, like, okay, yeah. I was yeah. wrong. Yeah. That's a hard We're thing all to do. learning. Yeah. Yes. We're all, all learning. learning. We're all doing our best. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So back to the book, you mentioned that this went through a lot of iterations, which I'm curious yeah. about because, you know, you, where you landed is this really, I think, very effective dual timeline, as you said, the two points of view. So we're following Rowan down like sort of this Eddie Calloway rabbit hole and this lore regarding the missing treasure and the mystery of what happened to her. But then you're taking us back 
in time to actual Eddie chapters in the 70s from her point of view. So we're seeing that in real time, which I thought worked really well. But it sounds like your decision to structure this this way was maybe a moving target. So tell us. It went, I mean, I when I wrote Recipe for a Perfect Wife, I sold the second book just unnamed. It was There was no real idea. I actually think I had pitched it as like these YouTuber sisters. And one was going to take over the other's identity. That's what was going to happen. There was going to be a murder. And then the other one was, you know, the anyway. <laughs> and I, no one was hooked into it. You just need basically a sentence for that second book at that point. And then after Recipe for a Perfect Wife, which is also dual timelines, but in the 50s and the present day, I knew that I wanted to do one more dual timeline at least. And I love making my settings sort of feel like a character. And so in Recipe for a Perfect Wife, the setting is the the home uh, where these two women lived. And in What Wild Women Do, it's also the, the woods, really, in this abandoned camp. But to get to that place, I mean, it was years. It, it was years. I wrote probably four different synopses and pitches. There was one that had, it was a dual timeline, but it was the same woman. And she was like 80 in one timeline and 30 in another. And she was sending magical letters back and forth between the timelines. And there was always feminist stuff in it. But I was like, no, that. I mean, my editor was like, look, magical realism is really hard to make work. And then I couldn't figure out how to make the letter, you know, what was the the magic letter? How is this happening? Where's the mailbox? So then that <laughs> one went away. And then I just, I really wanted to write something in the 1970s. I think because of my childhood and I had been to visit this great camp, it's called Camp Sagamore, which you can still go to. It was the Vanderbilt's camp. And I went there as a child and we stayed in Gloria Vanderbilt's cabin and it was rustic and, you know, just sort of mysterious and mystical and beautiful. And that stayed with me. So I thought, okay, wait, I can make the setting. I need them to be isolated. And I like to make my characters be isolated wherever it is they're dealing with their stuff. And so I thought, okay, let's go to the woods. I love the woods. I've become a birder now. I love trees. I mean, it just all sort of fits. So I kind of went back to my, that free range childhood. And then once I had that, it just worked. But I wrote Roland's whole story first. I've never done this before. I wrote her whole timeline first. And then I did Eddie's after. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And just, I know we have other, but you said birder. So I have, I have to ask about the crow. I love the crow. The crow who Rowan befriends, the crow made the cover of the U.S. edition. It's just what I, what, is this just sprung from your new birding interest or or how did you decide to make the crow so integral? Crows have this, they just, they feel scary is not the right word, but there's something ominous about a crow coming to land near you. And, and I started doing some research on crows specifically. And then I, my mind was blown. I mean, these birds are so smart. They share knowledge from one generation to the next. Like they pass down knowledge. They can build a tool they can remember faces. I mean, that whole thing about the crow bringing gifts and remembering people, like it's a real thing. They are smart. So I thought, well, I, how can I leave these 
crows out. Yes. And then I was like really obsessed with it getting on the cover. I was like, look, there needs to be a crow on the cover. Yes. I'm so glad. The little crow. Yes. Yes. did. Amazing. That's like in in a way that that makes them like women where like yes. they're too powerful, too smart, too powerful that they have to be cast as this darkness and evil. Yes, and right? also ignored because yes. they're not pretty like, you know, oh, yeah. the bright wow. red cardinals and Correct. they just don't have their their song is not right. uh, beautiful. The, yes. Uh-huh. So, you know, they're That's also right. a little forgotten and like, oh, those annoying crows. Yeah. It's like, oh, those crows remember your face. So you <laughs> yeah. always bring a peanut with you <laughs> when you see one. Okay. Love Love it. So Karma, I've been following you for a long time since recipe, since you were part of the debutante ball. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And I have come to associate you with your 5am writing routine. (laughs) And I know that it started when your daughter was very small. Is it still part of your life? And Either way, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about protecting your time, setting boundaries around your work, meaning keeping work in and also inviting in like your own personal time and how a little bit can mean and translate into a whole lot of transformation. Yeah. Well, I mean, I am still doing the 5 a.m. thing. It was because my daughter never slept. And so she'd get up at three and I had to get up with her and then we would watch Dora the Explorer. And then I just finally was like, I cannot watch Dora the Explorer (laughs) anymore. My brain is just going to mush. And so I thought, well, I'll try writing a book at that time. And one thing, I mean, you know, it worked for my first book. And then I thought, well, I'll just keep doing this. The problem is now that, I mean, she's 15. Yeah. yeah. And she's been sleeping well for at least eight years. Yeah. And I don't sleep anymore. And then there's perimenopause, which is a whole other thing. So, you know, sometimes it's 4 a.m. writer's club. I'm still up. Yeah, I go to bed ridiculously early. I'm all, yeah. I can't go to dinner parties. I basically, I'm like a brunch date. That's my <laughs> oh, that's sweet spot. We need to need it. Yeah, that's yes, my sweet spot. That is. Wow. But, but it, it was, yeah, it's a little, about a little bit you know, that one hour in the morning, yeah. you could write a whole book, you can do you whatever, can. learn a language, whatever it is that you want to do. Yeah. It doesn't it's have quiet. to be this big project. You know, you, you think of it no. at the end goal, and it sounds so big, but it gets done little by yeah. little. Well, one you, day wrote a whole, you wrote a whole book on this too, Karma. I, I mean, did. I you did. did. Yeah. I mean, my one and only nonfiction, nonfiction. Book, I think, but you know, that was a really weird experience. And it's very strange to write about yourself. I, I, Kudos to memoir writers, because living in that kind of space with all your stories in your side, no, I much prefer the fictional making stuff up. Yeah. From the core of me. Okay. But it's still got to be fake. Yeah. You're inspiring some of it, but it's still got to be fake. It's really a lot of work to do that and to just do it in a storytelling way. But I mean, the the 5 a.m. thing, it just works. And I have turned a lot of other authors who were really like, I will never get up early to write karma. It's never happening. And then I get messages. Oh, it's working. Oh, I'm, I'm a 5am writer now. And like, Look at that. yeah, you turn so, them. You I turn them. them. It's not for everyone. <laughs> I know, but it works for me. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, we mentioned already earlier your cardinal sign. Uh, Well, yes. So there are there there. Well, Corinne's going to there are four qualities. Yeah, qualities. Just like the zodiac signs in the the twelve zodiac signs are divided by elements and also by qualities. And there's cardinal, fixed, and mutable. Three qualities for elements, but. Cardinal signs are the beginning of every season. So they are the ones who kind of dive right in. They are not afraid of making a change when they feel like they have to. It's important to them. They can't stay stuck. Fixed people are the steady middle of the the season. And then the mutables kind of wrap it all up at the end. But They're good at finishing things, ending things. Yeah, Yeah. or like synthesizing them. Like being like, okay, here's your takeaway. Goodbye. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, but... Le- so Libra, Libra. Yeah. yeah, you're a cardinal sign. Corinne is an Aries, so she starts. They are the starting sign of the whole zodiac. So yeah, you guys like s- yeah. fresh starts, change, yeah. new things. And then, you know, I raised my hand as a fixed sign. Yeah, I'm in the middle. And so we just like, we get on track. We're going to do the thing. We're going to stay doing the thing. That's you know? a so, good, like, Yes. It's a great match. It is. It yes. is. Good. Yes. So you're a Libra, which was just your birthday recently. So yeah. do you relate to being a Libra? Okay, so if, I was prepared for this question. And I, and I don't know a lot about it, but I have a question for you. Yes. Yeah. So there are things about Libra that are very much me. I'm not... My husband's always joking about my fists of justice, and mm-hmm. I get so mm-hmm. upset when things are not fair. I mean, uh, oh. beyond. Yes. Mm-hmm. But they're also, I was born two weeks late, mm. and which I think would have made me Virgo. a Virgo if mm-hmm. I had been born yes. when I was, yeah. you know, around my due mm-hmm. date. And there mm-hmm. are Virgo things that I feel like. Now I can't even think about what they are. But when yeah, I looked but, at the two, I'm yeah. like, wait, I feel like I'm yeah. somewhere between. So is that a thing? Oh, absolutely. That's a okay. thing. Yeah. The sun sign is just the thing that's like in the, you know, the New York Post. Where it's like, Aries, <laughs> today you're going to have a great yeah. day or whatever. Libra, yeah. you know, keep things on balance. They're so reductive. But your whole chart is so many more uh, aspects. It lines up with all the planets. Your moon sign is your inner Per, like self and how you like my moon sign is a Capricorn also a cardinal sign but very grounded earth sign very disciplined so that is certainly part of me which goes against the Aries part of me your rising sign is how you present present to the, the world. world yes and yeah. so someone go yeah right. and then also so- there's Mars which is how you take mm-hmm. action Mercury which is how you communicate Venus which is how you connect with other people so yeah, and those can be, you might have one or more of those in Virgo or Virgo. in other signs yeah. that, that mimic yeah. Virgo. Maybe then, maybe yeah. that's it. Yeah. So we're all really a mix of all these things. And for well, most Kate's people, not. Mean, I'm even not. Though, My, yeah. Even though I, Kate still has all of these things, they're almost all in Leo. <laughs> like what? I'm the most, I'm the most Leo, Leo you can find, which is so, but for everyone else, if there, they don't, if they feel they only relate to one part of their sign, Yeah. They can have, or as Corinne's pointing out, you can have some real conflict in you as to one part of you versus another. So, I feel like that is me 100%. Yeah. I need to go yeah. and know what it is because you, there yeah. are definitely parts of me that are in conflict at all. Yes. yes. Right. arguments and negotiations. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. then you just Which is learn kind to of Libra, though, too. Yes. <laughs> like always the two sides. Yes. The Although Libras are, are also very magical. 
beings mm-hmm. and have very strong powers to manifest. So that also doesn't surprise mm-hmm. me well, uh, mm. about that. Do you feel like that, that there's like a collectiveness, especially in, I don't know if it's publishing or writing or or whatever it is, because you mentioned that this started out with twin podcasters, which made me immediately think of Lisa Jewell's book that came out just a few months uh-huh. ago, None of This is True, is about like, I think the tagline is like, hi, I'm your birthday twin. And it's about mm-hmm. a podcaster. And so like, I don't know. And I was in a writing group the other day, and we're all writing about twins. I'm like, why? No one knew that the other one was writing about twins. Like, there is in a big magic, Elizabeth Gilbert kind of talks about like this, what it's out there and you might feel, especially as a baby writer, you might feel like people are stealing your ideas. But then you just come to learn that there is something collective about this process. Yeah, there is. And I am a massive Rick Rubin I'm obsessed yes. with Rick Rubin. <gasps> See, um, yeah. He's like, if I need to calm down, I put a podcast with Rick Rubin I, discussing the creative act in my yeah, ears. It, that book's right His behind voice, me. And I'm always like, yes, Rick. Yes, I am. <gasps> yes. I am going to do that. And I'm obsessively sending notes to my author friends. Like Rick says <laughs> that the moment of success is the moment that you give the thing you've created as an offering to the world. <gasps> And then nothing yeah. else matters after that. Yeah. That's your success. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm, I mean, I'm obsessed with yeah. him. Yeah. He has something that's similar where he talks about that, like the Elizabeth Gilbert big magic mm-hmm. piece, where it's that idea that the universe, there's all these, it feels like it's a trend, but yeah. they're just floating around up there waiting to be grabbed out. And sometimes yeah. there's a, a linking of those ideas. And so no one's stealing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've never worried about that. I talk mm-hmm. about what I'm writing. I, I read the same genre that same. I'm writing. So yeah, you're like, I'm it's not fine. worried about stealing someone's idea or me stealing. Yeah. Or having my ideas stolen, I just because I don't a book about this. birthday twins by Karma Brown is is totally not going to ever be the Lisa mm-hmm. Jewell version of the same exact thing. You could exactly. you could write the same plot and yeah. it would just come out so different. But that birthday twin or that twin book was not for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah, you know, it was an yeah. idea I grabbed and then went, oh no. No, right. I can't no. This. Yeah. put that back. Yes, yeah. give it to Something someone else. else. Yes, yes. yes. put someone it back in the universe to someone else. Maybe either. Lisa Jewell grabbed yes, it exactly it out of Maybe the universe. I'm sure she did a much better job. I haven't read that one, but it's I'm fantastic. She did a great job. <laughs> yes. with that it's fantastic. But I love all of this. Yeah, and also it's like you know sometimes people hear, and, and I'd love to ask you too. Sometimes people hear like, "Oh, I got to just let it go." But then you're also saying you're a control freak. I'm the same way. It's like a constant balance. And be, maybe it's like knowing when to, like when to hold on. And I will hold on to a book and edit it to its death. And then when I have to let it go, I, I have to let it go. And so I can't just be like, everything's going to work out. It's all fine. I just couldn't function that way. <laughs> but no, when you, it's, I mean, people are often like, well, would you change any, like if you got your book back, would you rewrite it based on reviews? First of all, I don't read uh, any reviews. I read no reviews mm-hmm, yeah. um, of mm-hmm. any of my books. Very Unless smart. someone tags me and sometimes they do that and it's not a positive review and you're like, you didn't have to Why tag me. No, right? <laughs> yeah, no need for but, that. Yeah. I just. Yeah keep all of that very much separate because I'm never going to like the book I wrote is the book I wrote. I wouldn't have changed it. As soon as I start 
getting my thesaurus out and I'm changing words. You know, I'm like looking up a word and I'm like, Ooh, I like, kind of like the way that one feels. That's when I know I'm done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Send it off. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. time. You're, you're now fiddling with, you know, the word special. Right. So it's not going to matter to a reader. Not going to matter. Yeah. But how does the control freak also learn to hold things gently, which you've mentioned on here. And I, you put that in a birthday post recently, like, Tell me, sh- tell me your ways. Well, I mean, therapy is one yeah. way. Yeah. Um, Check. Already got that. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. Rick Rubin has okay. been massively significant. Okay. I mean, I can't even explain it. I think it was the right time for me. I This year, I decided to just take a step back and focus on other things and let go of the publishing stuff because I put out so many books during COVID and edits on wild women were really hard and I just like burned out. And so I thought Mm -hmm. I have to like not write anything for, which I haven't done in 10 years. And so I didn't Mm -hmm. write. It feels scary. Five months. Mm -hmm. I just didn't write anything. And, but doing that, then I started doing cold showers. That's another thing that has really helped with my, you know, balancing sort of the mood around like, feeling stressed about holding on too tight and wanting to just hold something gently, breathing mm-hmm. exercises. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm just like, that's why when you were talking about the, all the sun signs and moon signs, yeah, yeah. I was like, well, maybe this is the thing I'm just going to go and learn everything about. I yeah. just feel like letting go means like truly, like just every time I'm stressing about something, I say to myself, hold this problem gently. Like your friend Rick says, Hold it gently in your hand and just yeah. wait. Just yeah. wait. Yes. And oh. it's yeah. working. Yes. Yeah. It but does work. That's yes. the thing. When I'm but, able to do it, yeah. this actually works. And might it, I, oh my gosh. Yeah. And might I offer the most, like the best way to do it is practice, right? The yeah. more you realize, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. And the more you realize you let go and the world didn't end, Yes, your body takes that in. It's like okay, all right. I can we do didn't this like again, it, but we could do it again, but and next time we could. I yeah. won't feel so anxious about it. Or that, right? That's or that's my talk. No, no, yeah. I it's, I agree. I think that that's, but it's so hard. It it's is so hard. hard to do so when hard. you've been hanging on. Like if you're, you know, a control freak. Like I'm a control freak. Yeah. When you've been hanging on so hard for so long, it's yeah. just like what? What do you mean? Yes. Hold it yes. in my hands gently. Yes. But then yeah. when I tried it, I was like, oh, okay, yeah. I kind of get yeah. it. Like I, yeah. I understand now what, what that means. So yeah. yeah. Yes. I love it. Yes. So we can't let you leave without asking what you're loving. Um, books, TV shows, Rick Rubin, we know. <laughs> anything. <laughs> Rick Rubin and Sorry, was there more? I didn't. I no, any, anything you're loving or obsessing anything over is loving. Well, I'm obsessed with Rick Rubin. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with Severance on Apple. Oh. Mm-hmm. If you have not watched that, I mean, I'm obsessed. I've watched it twice. I think about it every couple of days. I, I don't know why. There's something. Yeah. To, have you seen it? I've seen. No. I've seen the first episode, but we haven't gone back to it. You and- have to. See- Yeah, you have to try to stick with it because it is it's so simple in its premise at the start that you're just like, what is this? Like, what am I watching? But then it just snowballs into this crazy story and 
all the deeper questions about like, I mean, essentially what it is, is these people have severed themselves so that they have a a self that lives in their day-to-day life and they have a self that goes to work at this particular organization. And the self at work knows nothing about the self at home and the self at home knows nothing about the self at work. And so it's like watching their lives, the things they're trying to escape from and the healing they're trying to do. But of course, there's a dark side in, you know, not kind of like taking the whole of you and letting it live. So anyway, I think it is just brilliant. By the way, that's not a spoiler at all. That's the first episode. Like you see them coming into the office building, riding up the elevator, and then all of a sudden you can see like their eyes go blank and they start over for their day. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm really like really into these sort of horrors like Night Bitch and like these allegories on motherhood. Mother Thing. Have you read Mother Thing by Ainsley Hogarth? No. No. It, It was, I think it was out. She's Canadian. Okay. It is like, I mean, I love horror. So this is something that I'm really into, but it's good. Oh, I'm going to check that out. And it's about her mother-in-law and it's like, anyway, I I can't, I cannot describe it. It's sort of like trying to explain Night Bitch or Mm -hmm. Dark Heart, which I haven't read. I look forward to reading. So that's it. Yeah. I mean, like I'm drafting right now and the book is coming out very soon. And so I'm just like. I'm Rick Rubin is sort of, you know, I'm holding Rick Rubin gently. Yes. By the way, Rubin only knew. I mean, he he wouldn't care. He knows nothing about what's happening in the world outside of his own yes. wonderful space, which yes. is beautiful. But yes. I cannot believe I don't talk about Rick Rubin more because same for me. Do you he have is, the book? Yes, have you absolutely. Is, okay. Yes, and I listen to any podcast he's ever on, including mm. his. And like, I am obsessed. Obsessed. And, yeah. No. And it's just it's impossible to. Like he is just so zen and he's so like there. He's so zen. Kate, have you listened to Rick Rubin? No, I have oh. not. This whole thing could turn me on to this. About like holding things gently. Mm. Go and listen yes. to his podcast or a podcast with him. Yes. Because mm-hmm. you will just be like, oh my God, Rick, I get it. I, yeah. I, feeling it so also yeah, I'm a with great it. a great like crossroad entry point for you kate might be the documentary with the avid brothers because he oh. plays in that oh yeah he counsels them specifically oh. on oh god what's that song um the one like i won't regret anything when i'm dead anyway it is it is a great documentary and his rick rubin is really in his element when he's counseling them so so wise so good all right i'm on it guys you had me yeah you had me like 10 minutes ago on it i was already like got it yes you guys are obsessed i'm in uh well karma thank you so much for taking the time twice today now to join us (laughs) we really appreciate it and i'm so glad we got to connect what wild women do is out now thank you so much this was wonderful thanks ladies oh my god loved it thank you